Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 417th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm Scott Feinberg, the host and also a trustee professor at Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. And for those of you tuning in, I should say that this is a special live episode being recorded at Chapman's Felino Theater in Orange, California, in front of an audience of my students and other members of the community of this great film school. My guest today is a Hollywood trailblazer. A great actress who was one of the first black Bond girls, who was the first black comic book movie superheroine, and who to this day remains the only black winner of the Best Actress Oscar. Though she is also an Emmy, Golden Globe, and Screen Actors Guild Award winner, she is not one to rest on her laurels, and she is now marking her 30th year in the business by doing something that she has never done before, directing. The audience here has just seen her directorial debut, Bruised, in which she also stars as an MMA fighter with problems at home. And so have a lot of other people. Indeed, in its first week on Netflix, it was the most watched movie on the platform in America and in 20 other countries. So I hope and expect we will be seeing a lot more from her, both in front of and behind the camera. Would you please join me in welcoming to Awards Chatter and to Chapman University, Halle Berry. Thank you very much for schlepping up here. And uh, to begin with on this podcast, we always just cover the basics. Could you tell our class and listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, well, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. And my mother was a registered nurse and my father was an orderly in the same hospital. Now, your mother is white, your father was black. I wonder if you could talk about what it was like growing up biracial uh, at that time. Barack Obama has written, I believe you were at his inauguration and is somebody a lot of us uh, admire. And he has written about his experience of sort of feeling caught between worlds in a similar situation. Was that something that you experienced? I did. I did feel caught between two worlds, um, largely because my black father left when I was three years old. And I was raised primarily by my white mother and me not being very white and looking very white. Um, I did have years where I struggled with my identity. And, you know, every little girl, every child wants to be like their parent. And my mother was something I could never be. So I did struggle with that. But luckily for me, I had a fifth grade teacher named Yvonne Sims, and she was a black woman. And she swooped me up, took me under her wings and helped me realize actually who I was and that I was a black woman. And she found ways for me to embrace that and appreciate that about myself. And I stopped comparing myself to wanting to be like my mother or all of the other white students that were around me. I went to a school where I was, you know, very few in an all white environment. And so she helped me with my identity. I'm glad you brought her up. And I want to ask you about that experience pre high school graduation when You've talked about sort of wanting to do everything, maybe the classic overachiever. What do you think that was about? That was about proving um, that I had value and really to myself. You know, I was struggling to fit in. I was struggling to feel good enough. Um, I felt very diminished 
because I was one of the only black kids and I was also a girl, I also felt diminished. And so I thought if I could prove to everybody that I was as smart as they were, that if I could be the editor of the paper and I could dictate what we wrote about and try to bring as much diversity there as I could, I would feel better about myself. If I could be the head cheerleader, I would feel good. If I could march in the band, I would feel good. If I could be on the honor society, I would on and on and on. And I, and I, and I spent my high school years exhausted at trying to prove that I was as good as everyone else. And not for no reason. I mean, there was something that happened. Was it about being prom queen or, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won prom queen because <laughs> I had to have that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that happened that made it... Uh, a moment that really shaped who I was, was when I won that award, the school officials, the principal and the vice principal came to me and they said, we have gotten word that you might have taken hand in stuffing the ballot box so that you might win this uh, title. And I thought, well, how, how would I have done that? I had nothing to do with that. I, I didn't stuff the ballot box. And they said, well, we just, we, we, we really need to bring you and the other woman in who was, you know, second to you. And we need to have a talk about it. And what I realized was I had to bring my mother up there. My teacher was there. And what I realized was that I could become, you know, president of our class, editor of the paper. I could be on the honor roll, be the silly mascot flipping around the bear cat on the football field. But I could not be this school symbol of beauty. They were just not ready for that. And so he brought us into the office, accused me of doing that. I said, I swear I didn't do that. And they had no proof that I did that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to settle this by a coin toss. Because he said, or you can be co-queens. And I said, I'm not being a co-queen. <laughs> no co-nothing. Yeah, right. I didn't do this, and let's toss the coin. Right. And I won. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, beauty pageants became a thing around that time. You were in and doing very well in Miss Ohio, Miss Teen America, Miss USA, Miss World, all, I believe you've said, in the same prom dress that you, right? <laughs> I mean, just, it's not, people shouldn't get the idea that it was like a, a wealthy background where you're going around getting a new gown for every contest, right? And I wonder if you can talk about um, when you did go off to college at the, you know, briefly there at the beginning, what did you imagine you were going to do with your life? I imagined I would be a journalist. And you know, I've realized since then, you know, and, you, and all of you have probably suffered from this, and I say suffer because it's a suffering. You get asked when you're maybe 10 years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, we're asked to answer this huge question before our frontal cortex is fully developed yet, you know, and we're expected to figure out and, and know what we'll do with our life before we've lived enough life to even know what we're good at or what makes us happy. It becomes a cerebral decision, not an emotional one, right? And, and often not a right one, or it's what our parents want us to do. So I was asked that question very, very early. And so I had to come up with an answer and it felt like journalist. That sounds like a good thing to do because I was being asked 
asked and asked and asked, and I felt like a failure if I didn't have a, an answer. And because I put that answer into the world, because so many people asked me the question, well then I had to live up to that because I had said it for all these years. I didn't want to be a failure again. That was sort of my, sort of the ticker tape of my life. Don't be a failure, don't be a failure, prove, prove, prove. So I thought I would be a journalist and I thought that that would make me happy. Enter Vincent Cirincioni. Is that Very the close. Yeah, close. Cirincioni. Cirincioni. Okay, so who is he? He um, was my longtime manager of about um, 25 years. Okay. My, my, my one and my first manager. And how did you hear from this? Meet guy? him? Yeah. Well, I was living in Chicago and I was modeling there um, because one of my beauty pageant uh, judges owned a modeling agency. And when the pageants were over, she said, come to Chicago. I said, I'm going to take a gap year. I'm going to go to college, but I want a, a break again before I go back to um, overachieving. <laughs> and she said, okay, come model for a year, make some money. So I did that. And while I was there, I was studying at Second City just as a way to... Um, you know, make friends and sort of fill up my nighttime hours. I was in Chicago all by myself. So while I was studying there, one day out of the blue, I get a phone call from this guy, fast talking guy saying, hey, is this Halle Berry? I said, yeah. This is Vincent Serencion. I'm a manager in New York. I uh, manage Sandy Ferguson. She was um, Miss Pennsylvania in your Miss Teen America pageant. Do you know her? Do you know her? Yeah. Well, I manage her. She's on a soap opera. And uh, they're, they're looking for a black girl just like her, you know, bubbly, cute. I, are you interested? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? So I flew to New York, didn't know this man really, but I knew that he knew her and I, and I had become close to her in my pageant days. So I flew to New York. I did this audition, bombed the audition, <laughs> but uh, he said, I think you have talent. And he had me make a tape and he goes, leave me with the tape and go back to Chicago and figure out what you're going to do. And if you want to come, come back and um, I'd be happy to manage you. So I did that. And I, I think you mentioned there that he specialized, I guess, representing soap actresses, actresses that were in soap operas. And in fact, that was the first big thing that you landed this uh, soap opera, Living Dolls, right? About models. A sitcom. A sitcom, excuse me. Yeah. Didn't last super long. And then there was a period of what's coming next, right? How did your first movie opportunity present itself? Well, actually, when the sitcom got canceled, I, it was about four girls. I actually was the happiest of them all <laughs> <laughs> because my character being a black woman, I felt very much like the token. I, I was that character that walked into every room like, Hey guys. And then I, at the end of the scene, I'd say, come on, let's go. We're going to be late. You know, so I really didn't have a part. It was almost like they didn't know what to do with my character. So when it got canceled, I felt uh, grateful for the opportunity to have a start, but also relieved to be able to move on and find, you know, meteor roles to play. And that's when Jungle Fever came along. That was a, a, a audition that I had very shortly after the cancellation of that show with uh, Spike Lee. And this was in New York still? Yes. And this is Spike coming off of Do the Right Thing and originally asking you to play his character's wife. Why was that not what you wanted to do? Well, because that was a pretty girl. And knowing that I had come from this world of beauty pageants and modeling, I knew that I would have to dispel that that's all I was. 
right? I would have to prove that I had been working, I had been studying with, you know, like Bill Esper, Second City, I was studying Meisner technique. So I knew that I had skills and I knew that if I stayed in this beauty box, they would never get to be on display. I would never get to use them. So when I, I, I took the audition with Spike for his girlfriend, but I had a plan. <laughs> I knew that I would go in there and I would do that part. And then I would say, you know, Mr. Lee, if, if I could, can I read for the part of uh, Viv the crack hoe? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you're not a crack hoe. I said, I am a crack hoe. <laughs> you don't know it, but I'm a crack hoe. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, just let me go into the bathroom, wash this makeup off, and I'll show you I am the crack hoe. <laughs> so he let me do that, and I came back, and sure enough, I was the crack hoe. Yeah. And he was like, you are a crack hoe, so I got the job. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. That was the first first movie. Um, and we should say you did also play another recovering addict a few years after that in Losing Isaiah, but what people sometimes, I think, overlook is that after Jungle Fever, there were actually quite a few comedies. People don't necessarily <laughs> acknowledge enough that you've been in some very funny movies in Boomerang opposite Eddie Murphy, BAPS, um, which stands for Black American Princesses, Bullworth with Warren Beatty, who I know became a mentor. But I want to actually talk about one that you might not think I would bring up, but I want to. That is The Flintstones from 1994. This was not a landmark in the history of American cinema, but it is a landmark in a way in your career. Why was that? Well, at that time, you know, for Bedrock to be, you know, uh, diversified like that was huge. And it was those little small steps, you know, years ago, women of color didn't populate movies like that. You know, today, I think you all might feel like that's kind of normal. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it just those opportunities were far and few and in between. So to convince them that someone in Bedrock should be black was a big deal back then. And those were like the little battles that I won along the way. And in that case, and also in a few others, I know fatherhood, race, the son also, these were not, these were roles that in some way or another were expressly written for a white woman. So in a way that's, at, especially at that time, that was quite a victory to convince them they were wrong, right? It was a victory because without those victories, I'd have no place. So my job was making a way out of no way and convincing them that we need to start looking at ourselves differently and looking at, you know, our culture and allowing our films to reflect the real world, you know, the actual world that we're really living in. And it encompasses all of us. Well, and you've said something you would hear in those days, hopefully not anytime recently, but was quote, oh, we love Hallie, we just don't want to go black with this part, close quote, which people thought was like a harmless statement, but it was actually fairly racist in a way. Racist right? and yeah. gut-wrenchingly painful. Yeah. You know, gut-wrenchingly painful to hear that we love you, but we have no place for you. You know, you, we think you're great, but sorry. You know, or to hear them say, well, if we made her the mother, then what would the kids be? You know, and I was one of those kids, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, so it was gut-wrenching at times, yeah. I would guess that, and obviously tell me if I'm wrong, but that is not unrelated to why you fought really hard to play Dorothy Dandridge in introducing Dorothy Dandridge, a movie that was on television. It was directed by Chapman Professor Martha Coolidge, co-written by somebody who we would continue hearing from for a long time, Shonda Rhimes, and essentially playing 
and producing this movie about a trailblazer in the black film actress community who had sort of fascinated you for a while. What was the root of that? Why was that something you fought so hard to get to do? Well, first of all, she was one of the early uh, women of color that I saw as a little girl on television that I related to, that, you know, someone that I saw myself reflected in. And I somehow felt a, 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 a kindred connection, like we were kindred spirits in some way. My manager at the time, Vincent, this one that called me up, said to me, if you could produce a, a, a movie or star in or play a character, what would that be? And I right away said Dorothy Dandridge. And I knew that I had some connection to her. I didn't know what, but I knew I felt a connection to her. And so I feel like sure enough, as not with that movie, but when we got to Monster's Ball, I felt like I finished a journey in some way that she had been on. Absolutely, because um, yeah. she was the first black woman nominated for Best Actress Oscar. You obviously were the first to win. Um, but also, I would think part of this is that despite doing very good work, you were not getting leading roles in movies. So here's one on TV. And in talking about like where it felt kind of fated to do this, I heard that her manager, who must have been fairly old at that point, Earl Mills, gave you some gifts of hers? Yeah, he gave me some of her clothing, her passport, some very personal journals and diaries of hers. Um, and a dress. And a dress. The dress I had to give back. <laughs> <laughs> but the dress fit. I mean, when he gave it to me, you know, I said to myself, if this dress fits, mm -hmm. then somehow that's a sign. <laughs> um, and the dress fit. But I also had a feeling after having the dress in my house for a while that it didn't belong in my house, mm -hmm. that it needed to be somewhere else. And I gave it back to him and I always hoped that he donated it to a museum mm -hmm. somewhere. And, uh, but, but I knew that it didn't, that dress didn't belong with me. Interesting. Well, that, uh, role resulted in an Emmy and I believe a golden globe and all kinds of new career momentum. And one of the things that came out of that was I think the beginning of your involvement with a giant franchise for the first time with X-Men. And that first one was in 2000 playing Storm and then sequels in 2003 and 2006. But I think another thing right around that time would have been Monsters Ball. And in fact, like two years later is when it came out. So I just want to ask you, this movie, people should know, was made for $2.5 million in 21 days. Uh, not exactly... Oscar bait in the obvious sense. Um, how did you catch wind of it and why did you want to do it? Because I've, I've heard that Mark Forster, the director, wasn't even open to seeing you at first. Story of my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I first got the script and I read it and of course I loved it. Whenever I read a, a script and when I can viscerally feel the character, uh, I, I know right away that I have something to contribute. I loved what the story was about. It was about race relations in America at the time, and that's something that's always a button for me. I always want to be about a part of shedding light in those dark places for us. Um, but yeah, Mark Forster, the director, and Lee Daniels was the producer, thought again, like Spike, I didn't look like this Letitia Musgrove, this woman down on her luck living in the South. Um, and I once again said, well, what does that person look mm -hmm. like, you know, in your mind? And I just 
was persistent and relentless in my pursuit to get um, an audition and get to meet with them. And I finally got that. And then the director, Mark Forster, became my champion. Lee was still not so convinced, <laughs> but then Mark became my, my champion. So just to remind folks, this was this woman, um, her life's falling apart. Her husband is a death row inmate. And then she becomes involved with his executioner. And these are two broken people who kind of find solace in each other, not least in a scene that had a lot of people talking. And I just want to set it up this way, because a year before that, you had done a movie called Swordfish, which you said you openly acknowledged. You said that was if you've ever done gratuitous nudity in a movie, that was it. Uh, but now in this case, it's like the polar opposite, right? This is so integral to, it tells us so much about these characters. She literally is saying things that are telling you about her character in the, in the middle of this. Yeah. So I guess I just wonder, I mean, this is you, Billy Bob Thornton, who also was instrumental, I guess, in helping to get the movie financed. Not a, again, not a long shoot, not a lot of money. And you are thrown right into the yeah. deep, maybe not right in, cause I think it was later in the shoot, yes. but but this still, is a big deal. You know, a big yeah. deal. But let me speak to that. Like, you're right. That swordfish was gratuitous nudity. And it's this whole story reminded me that sometimes how important it is to listen to our gut. And my gut told me when that role, that gratuitous nudity of swordfish came my way, I said yes to it because I felt like I needed to get over this fear of being nude on camera. Like as an actor, our bodies are our instruments. And at some point, we have to get over that if you're really going to service every character that I was dreaming of playing, because sometimes that is just naturally a part of it. And so I took this role on because it gave me a chance to, you know, sort of deal with nudity in a way where I was sort of by myself, nobody touching me, not in a love scene. I got to just get over this fear that I had of exposing myself that way. And I did that. And I really didn't realize, I knew that I was, my instinct was saying, do it, do it, get over this fear. You're going to need to get over this fear. And if I didn't do that movie, when Monsters Ball came along, I would have been so fearful that I would have said no to this opportunity that in some ways, you know, that garnered me the highest award in my industry. So it affirmed to me that we do have to listen to our gut, even if we don't understand it at the time, but that little voice is oftentimes guiding us because it knows what's coming in some ways. And it's attempting to prepare us for opportunities that we need to be ready for. It's really interesting. And in the course of making that movie, would you have ever, I mean, how early on did you get the feeling that you were part of something special? Uh, I, I didn't really know I was a part of something special until probably the awards chatter started to happen. And then I realized that people were responding to my, um, my performance. But before that, I was just so proud that I faced that fear, that I dared take on a role like that, because many people told me that movie could actually end my career. Because of the interracial uh, dynamics? Yes, and the nudity. Yep. We, you know, the, It was very explicit on the page, so I knew what it had to be. And many people thought being, you know, especially me, uh, that that could you know, end my career. So I was just happy that it, it didn't end my <laughs> career. <laughs> was, Very much you know. didn't. Um, and in fact, so let me ask you this. All you mentioned awards chatter started, I think it was like maybe national board of review or something was first and it just builds and builds and builds. 
to the point where you're nominated for the Best Actress Oscar going into the 74th Academy Awards. That night showing up, how much of a shot did you give yourself personally? None, really, because back in those days, um, the Golden Globe was the precursor. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't win the Golden Globe, you you 90% of the time did not win the Academy Award. Well, I did not win the Golden Globe. So I think my dream of actually winning kind of died a slow death that night. <laughs> <laughs> and so you show up and on Oscar night, there's an honorary Oscar for Sidney Poitier. There is a Best Actor Oscar, sort of unexpectedly, but not undeservedly for Denzel Washington. And then they announce that you have won Best Actress. And I wonder if you can take me from the moment that, from when Russell Crowe <laughs> calls your name through the end of this acceptance speech that will be played till the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is I, when they called my name, I went into some sort of shock, clearly. Um, I don't even remember walking up those steps. All I remember for a brief moment is hearing Russell Crowe whisper in my ear, breathe, mate, breathe, mate. <laughs> and then I turned around and I took a breath and I, and I saw the, 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 the state, the auditorium, and I knew that I had to start speaking. But I didn't have a speech prepared because I was sure I wouldn't be standing there. And so I think my subconscious started rambling and what was really on my heart came out. And I, my real first memory that I had actually won was walking backstage and one of the women backstage, when you've been in the business for a while, you see the same people backstage. And there's a woman that I was very close to over the years and she came and gave me a hug and it sort of snapped me out of it. And she said, holy shit, you won. <laughs> and then I'm like, I won, I won, I did. And I looked and I had the gold guy in my hand and, and the I envelope. realized and the yeah. envelope yes. and I realized, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> I won. But it was almost as if I realized it backstage after the whole thing had happened. Now for somebody who was out of it, you gave a pretty memorable speech. So let's just say that one of the things you said was that you wanted to dedicate the win to quote every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because this door tonight has been open, close quote. So the door was obviously open in the best actress category, but would you have ever imagined that 20 years later, which is right now, no other black woman would have yet passed through it? And part B to that question, do you think that's more a reflection of a lack of opportunities being given to black actresses in leading roles in the industry or a lack of openness to them on the part of the Academy? I think all of the above. Mm -hmm. And my reaction to that, no, I didn't expect 20 years to go by and another person of color not stand next to me. Absolutely not. And it's been heartbreaking along the way. Um, but I do feel like I always look at things um, from a glass half full perspective. And I do feel like I see more women of color, more black women working in ways that 20 years ago, we just were not. We're now writing, directing, producing, starring in roles that do have room for us, that um, do tell our stories, that are including us in very meaningful ways. So I know that that night meant people got inspired, doors did open in other ways, maybe no one else has the award, but if I tell you honestly, I won that award and my career didn't fundamentally change. The script truck didn't back up to my front door <laughs> and just drop them off and say, here you go, all these great parts for you, Hallie. You know, two weeks, three weeks later, 
I realized I was still struggling to find parts. I was still struggling to get phone calls from great directors with ideas for me. So I, I say this with all sincerity, that while winning awards are great and we feel good when our peers say, you've done a great job and you get kudos for your hard work and you're acknowledged, but I don't feel um, as bad as you might think I would feel that no one stands there because I'm not so sure what that would do for them really anyway. It's not done much for me in way of work. I became more famous in that night and I'm part of history and I'm grateful and that means everything to, for my legacy. But the hard work still has continued for 20 years. What I had to go through to direct my first movie, you know, your heads would blow off if you knew the real story behind it. So my struggle didn't get easier because of that night. So I'm wondering if we need to be coveting awards as people of color or just do the work. And the win is that we are working so much more in the industry. We are calling our own shots. We're writing, creating our own projects and we're getting money to get those things done. That feels like the more meaningful win from where I sit after 20 years. We're definitely uh, going to come to the experience with Bruce and everything between the Oscar and Bruce, but I want to first quickly note that the year after somebody wins a Best Actress Oscar, they are asked back to present the Best Actor Oscar, which you graciously yes. returned to do. <laughs> and announced that the winner was Adrian Brody for The Pianist. And he basically grabbed you and forced a very long kiss on you. If that happened today, his career would have been over before he left the stage. How did you feel about it at the time, and how do you feel about it now? Well, I knew Adrian. It wasn't like a guy kissed me out of the blue that I didn't know. So okay, that I made didn't it, know that. that yeah. Made it, yeah, I knew Adrian. But I also knew in that moment if he was as out of his mind as I was when I stood there the year before, anything could happen. I mean, I'm lucky I didn't grab Russell and lay one on him. <laughs> you know, could have happened. Yeah. Um, so in that moment, I gave him a pass because I know what that out-of-body feeling is. I know the level of excitement that one feels winning that highest award, you know? So that, that's how I felt about it. Mm -hmm. I believe what you returned to after the Oscar, literally, a, I don't know, could have been days later, was the Bond movie, Die Another Day. And I will just note that you played Jinx Johnson, complete with an iconic Ursula Andress Lake emergence <laughs> from the ocean in an orange bikini, which certainly made an impression on teenagers, uh, myself among them. <laughs> you were a but, teenager? Uh, the... <laughs> oh my God, what am I, 100? No. <laughs> But uh, this Bond girl, I'm really old. <laughs> this Bond girl was one of the first who was really an equal partner in a way to Bond. In that case, Pierce Brosnan's Bond. And in fact, afterwards, there was talk of her getting a spinoff. So just the experience of being a quote-unquote Bond girl, and then just curious what happened with that that buzz that there might have been a spinoff. First of all, I loved being a Bond girl. To be a part of a franchise that is historic really felt meaningful to me. And I love that I got to sit down with Barbara Broccoli and talk about this new version of, of a Bond girl, of Jinx, and I got to be more, um, you know, a partner to Bond, and that really excited me. That felt like I was doing something innovative, something new that hadn't been done also. So I was all about that, and I'd never been 
treated better. I never had a better movie experience than working on the Bond movie, wow. just ever. And yeah, we talked about Jinx. Why Jinx didn't happen, it's hard to say why things don't happen sometimes. You know, you have the best laid plans and you have the best ideas and one thing leads to another. I went off to do another project. They had to get on to the next Bond. You know, they were churning them out at a more rapid pace than they actually do now back then. And so it's hard to say why things don't happen. But you didn't get the sense it was because there was reluctance to having a female-centered action movie, because obviously now we're living in the age of Wonder Woman and all of that, but was were there reservations about that? Not on the part of Barbara Broccoli or the whole Bond franchise. If there was any reservation, um, it maybe came from trying to figure out, well, what would that story be? And would that be a viable story? Maybe it was questioning, but I don't think it was a reservation on the part of, of mm. the Bond uh, franchise. I think maybe the first role that came about as a result of the Oscar, because again, Die Another Day was already in motion, would have been Gothica, which was correct. I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me, but I, that would have, that came out in 2003, playing a psychiatrist who winds up in prison in the jail where she works. And this was a $40 million film that made $60 million in the US and then $80 million abroad at a time when people were still the, the, not very nicely worded conventional wisdom was, quote, black doesn't travel, right? And meaning that the people were using that as an excuse to not make movies centered on black performers because people around the world wouldn't go and see them. That blew that out of the water. Was that a particularly meaningful Yes. Aspect of that. Yes, it was. And, and it was for that reason. Uh, Joel Silver, a producer, he was a friend of mine and he was always progressive in his thinking and he always knew the black travels. <laughs> um, and so um, he gave me that opportunity and a chance to be a part of a movie that that did prove that. Absolutely. Yeah. But these are early stages. These are the little baby That's steps that had to be. Yeah, that had these these um, these steps had to be made, I think, for us to arrive where we are today. So. You have had a sense of humor about the next one that I'm going to bring up. <laughs> Came out in 2004, just the year No, 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 no. Because I think, okay, so <laughs> we're talking about Catwoman, but I, I, <laughs> I, I do want to note that as best I can tell, there had never been a comic book movie superhero adaptation starring, I mean, I don't know about a woman, let alone a, a black woman. Um, that in itself was a, a kind of landmark thing. This was a $90 million movie. Yes, it took some flack. You were very good natured about it, even showing up at the Razzie award ceremony and accepting it as tearfully as the Oscar ceremony. But tell me about- so That's when my second city chops came. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, obviously everybody goes into every movie hoping to make something that everybody will respond to didn't necessarily happen, but that was a, uh, important movie, right? Along the way, what did you learn from that experience? It was important. And for all those reasons, it was important that I try because it had never been done. And what I live my life by is you don't win big if you don't risk big and you have to try. You're never going to break ground. And if you're trailblazing, you're never going to get anywhere if you don't think outside the box and do the unthinkable. And looking back, if I could do it differently, I would have Catwoman have um, a bigger enemy. You know, all 
all of the superheroes, they're saving the world from something. And I think that's what this movie lacked. You know, all Catwoman was doing was saving women's faces from being cracked off from this Beoline face cream, <laughs> you know? But, but even back then, people thought that that was having a female-centric movie, that it had to be about something to do with our beauty, that uh, a, a female superhero could not save the world. She could only save our our faces, right? So um, looking back, I think that was one big misstep in the way they thought about it. I wasn't the producer, the director, or the writer. I was just Catwoman, and I had to do my job as an actor. So, so the story wasn't my responsibility or something I was really that involved in. But if I could do it again, I think that was a big missing component that I think could have changed the outcome of that film. Interesting. And how do you like wearing that costume? Is that a uh, pleasant or unpleasant? I love that yeah. costume. <laughs> it's not like latexy or whatever, you know? No, mine was leather. Leather. Okay. Yeah. There you go. I love that. Nice. Yeah. So the the time that you return to something most in the, I mean, I guess let me frame it this way. You've said that part of the Oscar curse, which you, I think, believe in, is that people expect you to then do the same kind of thing ever after, right? You made a dramatic, artsy, low-budget, gritty movie, and that you, why aren't you doing more of that? I think the first time that you returned to that kind of movie would have been Things We Lost in the Fire yes. six years later, 2007. This is a woman who who is a wife and a mother whose life is upended when her husband is suddenly killed and who then becomes involved with a troubled guy played by Benicio Del Toro. It's really about grief, and I wonder you know, how you got into that headspace, what it's like when you're playing a character that has to live in that headspace for a while, and just anything else about that one. Yeah, well, I really wanted to do that because Suzanne Baer directed that, and I really, I loved working with Martha Coolidge, and I really wanted to work with a female director again, so that excited me, and I love Benicio Del Toro. And it did give me a chance to do something different. In my whole career, I've always tried to do something different each time out. I've never wanted to get pigeonholed or hold or play the same character twice. You know, it's always about growing and stretching and learning something new about myself and about the world around me. So that gave me a chance to deal with this thing called grief, which I never had done on film before. I have, to this day, I have not lost anyone um, very close to me that would put me in a grief-stricken place. So it was a great chance for me to explore what that might be like. You know, and um, I loved every second of working on that movie. I think that you then had a, a opposite experience in your own life, which was that you had a child and took a few years off from the business and got to live as close to a normal life as you probably can. Well, it was making that movie, having those two glorious children that I got to work with that played my children yeah. that made me realize I need to do this. Okay. I, like my ovaries were exploding. <laughs> I was like, something bad's going to happen yeah. if I don't make this happen. So it became my mission after that movie to be a mother. And I did. I took almost a decade. I took my 40s. Uh, I mean, you don't wait until you're 40 to have a baby to then not be home and be mom, right? right? right so right. I took probably a decade. My focus wasn't so much on working. It was more on being home with my children while they were little. The few times where you came back in that period were actually, though far from phoning it in, let's just say that Frankie and Alice is a movie released in 2010 
in which you play, is it eight different? No, pers- three. Or three different. Three. Uh, a go-go dancer who ends up turning out to have multiple personality disorder, three personalities, but sometimes even in the same scene, which is hard to imagine how you can even keep track of that. But based on a real woman, I, I guess what most excited you about that one? Because I know that was a years long struggle to just get that made. I've just been, you know, my mother was a psych nurse my Mm -hmm. whole life. So I've heard about psychiatry um, and I'm just fascinated with the brain and how this woman's brain, the trauma that she had suffered, how it caused her brain to sort of split off into these three different characters. It gave me a year of study, of learning. Um, I watched hours and hours of tape of so many people that suffer from this multiple personality disorder. and, And as an actor, to play that, was a huge challenge to, I played a six-year-old boy and a, get this, a white racist Southern woman (laughs) was one of the characters. This was before Dave Chappelle had the, (laughs) what was it, the blind race draft thing? Blind racist, yeah. That that was fascinating to me to get inside her mind being a black woman. And then I played this black stripper woman too. So just to, you know, get in the minds of these different characters was just uh, a challenge. And then another one in that period where you briefly came back was six characters in Cloud Atlas for the Wachowskis, which let's just say here, again, talk about quite a crazy range, everything from a 19th century Maori tribeswoman to an investigative journalist in the 1970s in one mind-exploding movie. And then you did something that you were kind of at the very early forefront of that now is the cool thing everybody's doing, which is going and doing television uh, for for film people who established themselves in film to go and do television at one time was like that meant you were you were done, done right <laughs> in this case you go to CBS to do excellent an astronaut who returns to earth from space travel mysteriously pregnant what convinced you that that was the the, the wave of the future not the coming back pregnant but doing tv right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't think that's why I did it because I thought it was the future. It was really necessity. I had l- little children and I couldn't really travel so much anymore and be away for two, three months at a time. And this offered me an opportunity to stay in Los Angeles and like work 10 minutes down the street from my house. And that is really why I did that. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is, as an actor, you know, this isn't a hobby. We, this is how we earn a living. And this is how I was raising my children and I'm still raising my children. So sometimes you do things because you have to, or it's the right thing to do at that moment that services your life and also, you know, um, your creativity at the same time. And it was two seasons of a Spielberg dealing with extraterrestrials. If if you've got to deal with extraterrestrials, he's probably the guy to do that. Um, so uh, one last one I'll mention before Bruised is Kings, which I remember seeing at a film festival. This is a very little in terms of scale project, but very interesting where it's you playing the foster mother of eight kids in South Central L.A. The director in this case was somebody who's a nut like Susanna Beer, a foreign language nominee at the Oscars, for, in this case for a movie called Mustang, which was great. And I guess, you know, you and Daniel Craig saw something in this that made you say, let's take a leap of faith. What was it for you? I just thought it was a great social commentary. It was about what was really happening in the world. It was about, you know, riots at a time that 
you know, was very important in our history. And uh, Denis had a different take on the riots from the standpoint of one innocent family um, and how the riots, how that night of the riots, how it affected their life. And I wanted to work with Daniel. I thought, and again, another female director, which I've been really seeking to do. I've loved every time I've had the opportunity to do that. Nice. Well, you had a female director in your most recent one, which we're now going to talk about. Um, and that is Bruce, which was, as I understand it, originally written for a white 20-something. I believe at one point Blake Lively was attached to Star. It was going to be Nick Cassavetes, the notebook director, directing it. Could have been a very different story and movie. How did the project open up and why did you most want to go after What made you most want to go after it? Well, I read it and I loved the bones of the story. I was an um, adamant fight fan when the script landed on my lap. I was a boxing fan since I was a kid. And for five years before, I was totally into UFC, MMA, especially the females of UFC. I've always loved this genre. This genre has always been winning for me. I think everybody loves to cheer for the underdog. You know, we all see ourselves reflected in stories like this. But I also felt um, that I wanted to play the lead character, but being 21 and white, I could not play. <laughs> so I knew that it would take some reimagining right. on my part if I could um, actually have the opportunity. When that kind of, when when that original pairing moved out past, I guess, or whatever on doing it, what was your, your, your pitch was that let's reframe this and in in to, to be about someone's last chance rather than their first chance? Yeah. Well, I felt like once Blake passed, I, I waited for six months mm -hmm. until she, you know, her own volition decided to pass. And in that six months, I had time to reimagine what it would be. And I felt like you know, in the climate that we live in now, having this be about a woman of color would make it very current, uh, something new. And, you know, and the only reason to make another movie in a genre that's so beloved, that's been stories that's been told by some of the greatest filmmakers of our time is to make it somehow different and new, give the audience something they've never seen before, right? So we've never seen a black woman and we've, we don't see MMA very much. And, you know, if I were to play the part, it would have to be reimagined for a middle-aged woman. But I also felt that watching a woman fight for a last chance was far more compelling than watching a young person fight for another chance. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between another chance and, like, last chance. Yeah. If, if this doesn't happen, like, shit's over. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's very different. Absolutely. And so you bring this to the producer who you'd worked with on John Wick 3, and he says, I like it. Go find a... Director? Our director, yeah. So what was and I that thought, process? Great. Yeah. <laughs> great. Give yeah. me that job. <laughs> um, well, I went out and because the story had only been imagined in my mind, I hadn't really sat down with, uh, you know, writers yet to sort of put it pen to paper. I had to just pitch the story and I wanted it again to be a female director. I wanted it to be very female heavy, to have a female gaze. And when I sat with these filmmakers, they didn't quite get the totality of the story I wanted to tell. They either wanted to tell just the dramatic part of it, or they wanted to make it just a fight film. And I needed it to be about both, because I understand through my research that women fight because of the drama. There's trauma and there's drama in a woman's life that causes her to go into the ring to fight, to get her power back. So I didn't think it would be a true depiction of a fighter's life if you're a female, if you don't get into the drama and the trauma. So I couldn't separate the two. And so finally, 
I, I went back and I was talking to a, uh, one of my producing partner at the time, Elaine Goldsmith Thomas, and I said, I, I can't find anyone. I don't think I'm, this movie is going to actually happen. I can't really find a director. And she said to me, well, why don't you do it? And I, and I said, are, are you high? <laughs> like, what are you smoking? I'm like, there's no way. I can't. This is a huge acting role. You know, I, 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 I can't do that. And she said, sure you can. It's only fear that's stopping you. you. You don't believe you can because as a woman and as a woman of color, you've never been told you could. You know, you look around you and you, you're told that you can't. You know, reality dictates you shouldn't do that. Nobody's doing it, you know, around you enough for you to believe it's possible. And I thought, you know, she's right. That's the only thing that's stopping me is myself and the belief in myself. So I, I smoked on it, not literally, <laughs> figuratively smoked right, on right, it right. for 48 hours. And then I, I, I woke up and I thought, I'm going to face this fear and I'm, and I'm going to do it. That's right. Now, yeah, I mean... Now, I wondered if one of the things that maybe, aside from being interested in, you know, fighting of, of whether it's boxing or MMA or UFC or whatever, um, and aside from the idea of seeing a black protagonist in that role, one of the other things maybe that interested you was the idea of a depiction of how even a very strong woman can be subjected to domestic violence, which I know is a cause that you've been very active in quietly, but people, enough people have seen it and talked about it that, I mean, you've helped a lot of people with this. And this is somebody here, Jackie Justice, who is herself, you know, she can take care of herself in a lot of ways uh, physically, but even she deals with this crap. Was that a consideration as well? Well, I wanted to uh, tell a story of a woman and tell it in the truest way possible. You know, oftentimes black women are at the bottom of society and what their life looks like is very different than some lives of some other women and other people. And it was really important that I, you know, shed some light on this subject as harsh as it may have seemed or, or harsh as it is to look at, I would always say to myself, imagine living it and what that would feel like. So it was important that I stay true to the story and true to what we as women go to. We're often marginalized, we're often victimized, and we often are afraid to tell these stories. It's sort of taboo. And I've worked for this shelter, like you said, for 25 years, and raising money is one of the hardest things I do because people tend to think, well, it's not a problem, they should just leave. As if, as if that were easy to do. If they had cancer, someone wouldn't say, well, just get over cancer, you know? So it was important for me to add elements of this story, again, to make us understand why a woman fights. And what I found out, what my research taught me was that women fight for very different reasons than men. Women fight to get their power back, to be seen, to, to be heard, to feel powerful within themselves because they've been so victimized throughout history. Where men fight to be the breadwinners of their family, to make money, to get out of poverty. It's a very different reasons. It's very personal for women. And winning the prize or the big money isn't often as powerful as just doing it and having an outlet to get that anger 
out of their bodies, right? So it was important that I show why this character was fighting and what she was so angry about and her, you know, what had happened to her as a child and deal with her current living situation and what she was dealing with on a daily basis. And so it, it, all of that had to be in there in order to get to that big fight scene at the end. Do you want to mention the name of the shelter or the website? That yes, you're... it's the uh, Genesee Center. Okay. Yes. People can check that out and hopefully contribute. Um, now you're fighting in this movie, not only on screen, but behind the screen, because talk about what happens. You've got to have the pleasure of seeing what it's like for a director to have to raise money, keep money, keep shooting days, all the stuff that is, uh, can be demoralizing when you're just trying to do the work. I mean, you're in this case, having to get and stay in fighting form, literally you're having to direct and then you're, there's all kinds of drama with budgets and shooting days, right? All kinds of drama. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. It was a very, um, by industry standards, a low budget movie and something that I had to sort of put together myself. So it's one day I had money, one day I didn't have money. I think it was a story that I can't say, you know, from the onset, many people believed in a black woman telling this story. So... It was a struggle. It, it was a constant struggle to fight for, you know, what I believe to be true. Um, and I remember a key turning point was, though, in getting the movie made when I reached out to a writer that um, is so well respected in the industry. His name is Stephen Adley Gerges. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. And when I reached out to Stephen and got him on board, he loved the idea and he um, offered to work with me. That was sort of when things started to change a little bit because you get someone of that uh, magnitude believing in you and wanting to help you write a story. And then all of a sudden it was, oh, Stephen was going to come work on this. And so that sort of moved my needle right. a, a little bit forward. What's it like directing yourself? Is there a way to be objective about your own performance? I know some people defer when they're on camera to their cinematographer or AD or whoever. How did you handle that? I had on our set, I had a dialect coach that was working with um, all of us on our dialects. And she was a dear friend of mine, Denise Woods. And what she would do for me is when I would be in the scene as a director, setting up the scene, talking to the actors, hearing everything they had to say, blocking, getting the scene set, at some point we would sort of do our run-throughs and she would just come over and whisper to me sometimes and say, okay, great, everybody's set. They're doing great, now you act. Because I would forget, because directing was my new job. And so I was so focused on directing that I would sometimes forget that, oh, I'm their scene mate. I need to start acting now. And so, but just her whispering that in my ear, you know, log on, I was able to drop into my character and forget about my directing job and, and actually be an actor. I think another key person who was on set is somebody who we see you fighting with on screen, but was there to help you with the fight aspect of this. And if you don't, I hope you won't mind me mentioning, because I, I think this is a testament to you. You're 55. You look a lot younger than that. <laughs> How unbelievable the shape you got yourself in here. Um, I know that you have always been into, you know, fitness from what I understand, but this is insane. I don't think somebody half your age could do that, right? <laughs> What's the secret? And who was that person? And, what was the, and who was the person that was uh, helping along the way? 
Well, the secret is just hard work. Yeah. It really is. There's no way around, you know, uh, staying in great shape at any age. You have to put the work in. It's important. And getting me in shape, I had so many people along the way that helped me, you know, from um, Eric Brown, Peter Lee Thomas. These are my trainers. Uh, Sun Lee, uh, Anisha Gibb, like all of these people, Heidi Moneymaker. Uh, these are all the people that sort of worked with me and, you know, uh, I surrounded myself with that would push me to my limits. And I, and Valentina Chevchenko, when she came on and was a part of my training process, she then pushed me even further. This is the opponent yeah, in the, the opponent. ring. Yeah. yeah, she's the real current flyweight UFC champion right now. And so when you're in the cage with a real champion and you're learning and you're fighting, you know, with the current champion, like you, your learning curve just like skyrockets. You know? Yeah, and she was saying, or what was there? I, I'd read the there was a referee who actually... Yeah, Keith Peterson. He was he, a real ref. Yeah. And what did he have to say? He said, at the, the, probably the highest compliment right. of the fight, he came to me um, halfway through the fight and he said, there's so many times when I think I'm watching a real fight <laughs> because he had just called her fight, her, her fight before she came to shoot this movie. And so he thought, I I think I'm in a real fight. And that, that was the, the highest compliment. That is the biggest compliment, compliment yeah. yeah. So what do you make of the fact this movie goes out after all this struggle of just to get your shooting days and your money goes up on Netflix. And as we said, number one movie in America opening week and 20 other countries. And Netflix was obviously pleased enough that they came to you and you guys have now made a deal to do a bunch more together. Um, just how have you, what have you made of the response? I've been blown away. I've been really blown away. I mean, we hope that um, when we risk big that, you know, we win big, <laughs> but you never know. And I've been on both sides of it. So I, I, I was um, wildly proud of that. I was shocked by that. Um, but I, along with everyone else on the whole cast and crew, worked tremendously hard for very little. So as happy as I was for myself, I'm also equally as happy for every single person that worked so incredibly hard on the film. Last minute from me, just a quick rapid fire. Will you direct again? I hope so. Will you direct yourself again? Never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is the story you most want to tell one day, but haven't yet been able to tell? <sighs> it's hard to say. I just did that. I just, this felt like a dream project to me. I always wanted to tell the life of uh, Angela Davis. I don't know if that will ever come to pass, but she's another, that's another story I'd love to get my That would be great. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just did trial of Chicago. So they, there's a missing person. Here. Yeah. There is a missing person. Uh, and lastly, before we turn this over to the students for a few minutes, what is the biggest misconception about you that you wish people had corrected? That I'm just a pretty face. Thank you so much Thank for this you. part. Thank you. And we are going to take just a few questions here. We're going to start with Liv Haley, please. Hi, Haley. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, a question I had for you was, from playing a woman who is possibly questioning her own sexuality in this new film, was there anything that you felt like you learned about the LGBTQ plus community? Um, well, I don't really see this character as someone questioning her sexuality. At least that wasn't my thought going into it. It was more um, a, a, a knowing that she needed love like she needed the air to breathe. 
And that could have come in the form of anything or anyone. I think she would have taken it. So uh, I, I don't necessarily feel that the character uh, will ultimately end up being a, a, a gay character. That, that wasn't, certainly that wasn't the, uh, the message at all. Let's go to Sophia Rubino. Hi, thank you so much for coming today. So my question was, how do you think your background as an actor affects the way you approach casting when you work as a director? And what specific things do you seek in actors that some directors without an acting background do not bring to the table? Ah, casting was key for me. They always say script is king and cast is queen, right? <laughs> so casting was very important. And I cherry picked all of these people. Most of them are from the theater actually. Um, and I know that theater actors have a certain work ethic and they're trained differently. And I've enjoyed every time I've gotten to work with actors from the theater, like Adrian Lennox, Stephen um, Henderson McKinley, Sheila Etim, who plays Budokan. They're all from the theater. And that was important. And what I look for um, being an actor, I, I look for actors that are good listeners, you know, and you would think that's acting one-on-one, but it's really not. It's really not. I've been in scenes with actors and they're not listening at all. They're just thinking about their next line and you can see it on their face. Right. You know, so someone who is um, a good listener, someone who's collaborative. And when they come to the audition and I have a conversation, I'm looking for what are their thoughts about the character? What kinds of thoughts do they have about the character? And if they can teach me something new about the character. I know that's always my job when I meet a director. I want to tell them something about this character that maybe they never thought of before because I've been thinking so deeply about it. So it was important for me to see, what do these actors have to teach me about these characters? You know, And how invested are they really? And the ones that had done that kind of work and had thoughts about the character, even if they were different than mine, it didn't really matter at that point. But having thoughts about it says you're deeply invested in this character that you may be asked to play. Ben Schell. Hey, Hallie. Uh, you've worked with a lot of great directors over your career, and I was just wondering in your debut uh, who you took inspiration from and how so. Ah, I've taken from um, all the directors I've worked with, the ones that taught me great things to do and the ones that I never want to emulate. <laughs> you know, there's lessons in, in all of it, right? The, the good, the bad, and everything in between. Um, but I'm a huge fan of um, David O. Russell. Um, Darren Aronofsky is one of my favorite directors. Of course, Spike Lee. I learned a lot from Spike. He was the first director I ever worked for in film, and he allowed me to learn and shadow him. Um, Warren Beatty, uh, Martha Coolidge, Suzanne Baer, Mark Forrester, directors that I have had opportunities to work with. And these directors also allowed me to learn, too. You know, I've never been an actress that shows up on the set and says, you know, call me when you're ready. I'm always out in the world and talking to everybody and trying to understand all the departments and always, I've always looked behind the camera. I think I've looked behind the camera many times on every movie I've ever done, just wanting to see what the director sees or the DP sees and understand how they're lining up shots. And so I've learned not only from directors, but I've learned just from being on sets for 30 years. Ruby Blakesley's question about advice. Where's Ruby here? My first question is that who gave you the best advice when transitioning from acting to directing and what did they say? <sighs> I don't think I got best advice. 
Um, but, but I, some good advice that I remember hearing along the way, I'll tell you that. I remember when I was working on Bullworth with Warren Beatty, that was the first time I worked with a director that was also directing himself. And I remember asking him, you know, this seems like a lot of a lot of a lot. <laughs> how are you doing this? Like, how do you direct yourself? And he gave me the advice that I then carried on to when I decided to, to do Bruised, and that was hire people to head all of your departments that you supremely trust, that you know share your vision, and who understand exactly what's inside your head, and then trust them to do their jobs. Don't micromanage, because if you're acting and directing, you don't have time to micromanage. So choose wisely and take all the time you need in choosing those department heads, but make sure you choose someone that's very aligned with your vision. And I did that and I, I handpicked these people and they really did understand what was in my head and I didn't have to micromanage. I was amazed every day with the ideas that they would bring to me that would ignite me and get me excited. Last question is going to come from Molly Rose Freeman. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so you've said and talked about here too that you were really involved in and dedicated to totally reshaping the story to tell the story of a woman of color, which was really important to me as well. So my question is, were you able to be that same level of involved in the post-production process, like for editing? And did you have to sort of learn as you went in that area? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> it was very important to me. Um, and I was reshaping the story was very important, which is why I said earlier, I brought in Stephen Edley Gerges. You know, he, he really understands these w worlds um, in a very visceral way. And I knew that I could trust him to help me do that um, and put language in the mouths of these characters and help me create very authentic circumstances that were real and felt real. And I learned a lot in the edit. I'd never sat in an edit room before other than doing videos or something very small. So I learned daily, but I know that I'm a good student, uh, and I know that I'm curious, and I knew that enough to know that I didn't know everything about what I was doing, and I surrounded myself there again with, I thought, uh, very capable, good people that also understood uh, the vision that I had in my mind and the way I wanted the movie to feel, and I trusted them a lot, but I also sat there and I had my you know, my daily input. It was weird to do it the way I had to do it. It was in COVID, so I didn't get to sit next to the editor like every director has told me is like the greatest feeling ever. I didn't get to do that. I was, you know, on a computer screen with my editor for most of the time, but um, I was very involved and learned a lot throughout from this process. Well, Hallie, on behalf of The Hollywood Reporter, my class, everybody here at Chapman, we can't thank you enough for coming and being so generous with your time and thoughts. It was really amazing. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.